that we are seated on high, Lord, that you have um, redeemed us, cleansed us from all unrighteousness. We love you, and as we open your holy scriptures, teach us more of who you are, why you did what you've done, and uh, we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. You may have a seat. Amen. Good morning. Good morning. Hey, good to have you. If I haven't met you yet, <clears throat> my name is Jesse. Glad you guys made it. It's always a blessing when, uh, when we have snow like this and people still show up and there's traffic. I, I really look forward to spring and summer, mainly just because I get to see everybody. Um, and no one's late to church as much and all that good stuff. <clears throat> uh, if you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. One of the ushers will hand you a Bible. Turn to uh, Mark chapter 15. That's where we're at this morning. <clears throat> and I just want to mention a couple things uh, before we get into the text. One, um, Night to Shine is coming up on February 10th. That is basically a prom for special needs uh, uh, individuals. And if you'd like to come and you want to help out in any way, please connect uh, with our good friend right here up front, and she will make sure that you get dialed in and connected. And all of that stuff, too, like if you want to sign up, find the connecting points, it's on our webpage. It's on all of our social media stuff. But the key is to download our app if you haven't done so. Get that on your phone. Turn alerts on. You'll get uh, updates periodically from us, uh, as well as our newsletters in there and all of that. You can sign up for a newsletter on the webpage. You can do that on um, uh, the app as well. Pretty easy to do. So make sure you uh, are able to do that if you haven't. <clears throat> We're also looking for volunteers for SoundTech and our hospitality team. Brad Beers oversees our hospitality team as a whole, so that's our ushers and our greeters, those who welcome people and all that. Uh, and so connect with Brad Beers uh, to sign up for that and connect with the Hawaiian legend Brad Knoll if you want to help out in the sound booth. Right, Brad? That is a fun ministry. I don't... Yeah, yeah. We don't know what, but we know we... Yeah. Okay, let, let me share something else. Can I share something else? Um, I want to tell you about the time I almost burned the church down. It, it was on Monday. Uh, and I'm telling the story in part because people hear, and then I got to tell the story like 18 times, and I want to just tell it at once. So here's basically what happened on a Monday. Someone gifted me this little candle, uh, a little about that yay big. It was a little beehive, little beehive candle, uh, no glass bottom to it or anything. And I wanted to light it in my office, uh, and so I did. And, and, and again, I didn't have a bottom, but I had these little wooden pallets I have in my office. <clears throat> and uh, you can tell where we're going. And I put it on there, and I thought to myself, right around 12 p.m., I'll remember to blow it out. I'm a smart guy. And I uh, put it off to the side, and I forgot. Came here, and, uh, and my sister had her baby shower, went home. And about 7 o'clock, I lit it at 12, 7 o'clock, uh, I get a message in our staff messaging app that we use, and it was, <laughs> it was, where's the fire, ex where's the fire, ex <laughs> your office is on fire, seriously. And uh, that's the story. I almost burned it down. The desk almost burned. Well, the desk pretty much is destroyed. Uh, and, and here's what I want you to learn from this, okay? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, Nancy was the one who gave me the candle, Nancy Porges. So it's technically Nancy's fault. She was in the first gathering. She took it well. Okay. Um, so now my office is empty. It's got to be repainted. 
Uh, oh, we only destroyed, <laughs> we, I only destroyed <clears throat> a phone. Okay. That actually is going to be a great illustration for where we're at this morning in the text. As we have progressed in this gospel, it's easy as, you know, we're walking through Mark. Remember, Mark moves faster than all the other gospels. You get a real kind of rapid taste of who Jesus is. It's a great book, actually, to start with for a new believer, I think. And, man, there's some great stories in there. They're quick. They're really easily understood. And then yet... There's these really deep things in Mark, too, that are, like, hidden. The contrasts in Mark are pretty pretty uh, stark and pretty beautiful. Uh, the way that Mark sandwiches things, the way he lay- layers his stories are really beautiful. And now as we kind of come to the conclusion <clears throat> over the next couple weeks or so, uh, it, it obviously is a harder text to read because we're getting into the nitty-gritty of the gospel of the cross, of the beating, and of the crucifixion. Uh, this morning, if you remember... Uh, previously, Jesus has gone through uh, three series of uh, basically Hebrew trials. Uh, Jesus was first brought before Annas, uh, who is the operating, uh, he's the, actually the, uh, he was the high priest. His son-in-law is Caiaphas, the, the operating high priest. So Jesus goes before Annas, and then he goes before Caiaphas and Caiaphas's house. Then uh, he goes before the Sanhedrin, which is like their Supreme Court. Then uh, he gets dragged off to the Roman uh, side of things. He sees Pilate. Pilate really doesn't want to have anything to do with this. Pilate passes Jesus off to Herod. Herod isn't entertained with Jesus quite enough, so he sends him back to Pilate. And Pilate has to deal with him because the Hebrews, remember, don't have authority to put someone to death. And that's what they want to do. They want to put Jesus to death. And I think in this particular text, before we stand here in a moment, I, I think what you need to know is that this piece of text is more than any other text in the Gospels, is trying to show us the deep need of that, that we need a substitute, that we need someone who would stand in our place on our behalf, uh, and, and that would, they, they would take the blame for us, essentially. And so <clears throat> we're going to be introduced to Barabbas, who is the one that goes free, while Jesus is drawn uh, before uh, the Roman uh, crowd, the Roman battalion, which is about 600 men, uh, probably to mock him even further and to make a greater spectacle of it. And Jesus isn't freed, but rather he dies on our behalf. Uh, And so I want you to ask that question, how free do you really feel that you are? Uh, What kind of freedom, and what what does the Bible really even mean by freedom? And and what what does it mean to be free? Because I would argue no one really ultimately is free. Uh, I had a conversation with an older gentleman a couple years about this, and you know, how much they love the U.S. and all of that, which is great, but um, we don't really have even true freedom here. I mean, if, if you don't believe me, just don't pay your car registration. See how far you go. Don't, don't pay your home taxes if you own a home. See how long you get to keep your home, right? Uh, and so th- there are limitations to our freedom. And, and yet I think Jesus, when we say, what does Jesus free us from? He frees us from the penalty and the power of sin. Two Ps, penalty and power. The penalty is death. That's what Bring, that's what our sin and our guilt and our shame bring. The power is the condemnation and the guilt, the heaviness, the weightiness, the ugliness that we feel from our sin. And Jesus wants to handle all of that. Uh, so if you were able to this morning, would you stand with me? I'm going to read 20 verses <clears throat> from Mark 15. Like I said, they are heavy, uh, but they are beautiful. And as soon as it was morning, morning is about 5 a.m., 6 a.m., 
the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and the scribes and the whole council. This is just a veneer. You, you can't punish someone. You can't send a judgment unless it's day. They've already made their judgment in the night. Uh, but this is just a veneer to make it look like they're doing the right thing. <clears throat> and they bound Jesus. They led him away and they delivered him to Pilate. Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate asked him again, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you? But Jesus made no further answer so that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with this man that you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, What evil has he done? And they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters. They called together the whole battalion, and they clothed him in a purple cloak. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him and they stripped him of his purple cloak and they put his own clothes on him and they led him out to crucify him. Lord, this is heavy. May it weigh upon us as you see fit. May it free us in the way that you desire. And may you be glorified and worshiped because of it. In Jesus' name, the church said, amen. Please be seated. the first thing we see is Jesus is drawn off is that he is, as the text says, delivered. He is handed over. Uh, There's two reasons I think that Jesus was handed over. The first one is probably pretty easy to see. He's delivered over because of the depravity and the sin of man. First of all, we take the characters of the Sanhedrin or Caiaphas or Annas, all who are seeking to destroy our Savior for selfish reasons. It says so right here. Pilate himself sees that it's because of their envy. They are jealous, probably for the influence that Jesus has, the leadership that he possesses, the following that he is gathering, and I'm sure it has had financial implications for them as well. So this depravity of man is right here in front of us. We see that specifically. When we say depravity, we mean that the sinfulness of man. We can see that clearly in Pilate. Pilate was the fifth Roman governor of Judea. And he's only in this area because of the Passover, right? He doesn't live here. But he's in this area because of the Passover to keep peace amongst the Jews. He's kind of a peacekeeper. He's already kind of on thin ice, but he was known as kind of a a cruel and harsh individual. He despised the Jews, and he loved to antagonize them. He liked to play with them. Uh, In fact, there's one particular instance where literally... Uh, He used temple money to build a great aqueduct. So he wasn't popular with the Jews. He didn't like the Jews. There was tension there, but he's there to keep peace. And on occasion, he would do things to keep that peace, like letting go once a year 
a criminal of some sort or someone that the people would say free. It was his attempt uh, to literally appease the people. Uh, so he asks Jesus. He says to Jesus, he has one particular question. There's three in here, but one particular question that all three of the other questions really surround themselves around. What is the one question that he wants to know of Jesus? He doesn't care if Jesus is the Messiah. He doesn't care if he's even a Hebrew. The one question he asks is, is it true? Are you the king of the Jews? Here's essentially what Pilate's asking as a peacekeeper. He's asking, is your leadership, is your kingship have any political implications? Are you going to cause me a political problem? Are you going to cause me any kind of uprising that I should be aware of? And he can see as he's questioning Jesus that this isn't the reality. And, and Jesus says very little. His silence is emphasized here. He does say a few things. But one of the things he says is, well, you said so, which is neither a denial nor is it an affirmation, which is really interesting here. Because there's, there's some deep implications to this for us this morning. Because essentially what, essentially what Pilate's asking Jesus is, do you have any political stance? And Jesus' answer essentially is, yes. And no. Right? This is the Christian stance within politics. Are you political? Yes and no. What do we mean by that? If he's asking, are you this political leader? Are you going to have any political implications? And Jesus says, yes and no. In fact, in fact, in John chapter 18, Jesus adds to his statement on this. Listen to what he says. My kingdom, do you remember this? Where's his kingdom from? It's not from here. My kingdom's not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. Do you hear what he's saying? If I was really a political leader like you say I am, then I would be fighting right now. I'd be sending angels from heaven. My disciples would be fighting. Uh, this actually comes in clear contrast as well. You remember when Jesus is handed, uh, I don't think he's handed the actual coin, but I'm sure that it was there as an illustration, right? And it, who... Do we pay ta taxes to Caesar, yes or no? You remember what Jesus' stance is? Very similar to the political question here as well. Yes and no, right? What does he say? Well, whose face is on the coin? Caesar's. The image on that coin is Caesar's, so give the coin to Caesar. It's obviously his. So he's saying basically, yes, be involved in politics. Pay your taxes. However, Jesus is a big advocate for small government. You know how I know that? Well, because if the government ever asks you to do anything that is against the sovereignty of God, because the image of the coin, on the image of the coin, that's Caesar. So you give that to Caesar. Whose image do you carry? God's. That's Jesus' way of saying, limit the government to the extent of what God calls you to rule. If it's not sinful, if it's not ugly, go about your business and do it. But as soon as the government says, we have complete control over you and we can dictate what you do over God, now we got a problem, right? So is Jesus political? <laughs> yeah. Is Jesus also not political? <laughs> yeah. And if you fall on either side, that is where the danger is. Because when he said, how do I know this? What does Jesus say? My kingdom's not of this world. If it was of this world, we'd be fighting. So the other thing Jesus now is saying in regards to his political stance here is he's saying, Christians don't take things by force. Christians don't go to war for this kind of stuff. Christians don't kill people to go do these kind of things. We don't take it by force. 
In fact, <clears throat> we have to say Christianity has never done well when it's been in power because Christianity always thrives its best when it's serving underneath the culture, specifically its enemies. Remember, Jesus says, love your enemies because even those who are good to those who are good to them, the world does that. But if you're really a gospel-centered Christian, you're going to love your enemies. Okay, that's just a little side eddy for those of you who are like, I love politics. If you're too far on that end, you're not like Christ. I hate politics. If you're too far on that end, you're not like Christ. You have to find the tension. You have to find the balance. So this sinful pilot is asking him, what, what, what is your political stance here? Jesus doesn't totally give a great answer. So this cruel individual who is showing us the depravity of man, but what we're also seeing in this is Jesus is completely silent, is we're seeing that Jesus himself is totally submitted to God's purposes and plan. So we say when Jesus was delivered, why? He was delivered because of the depravity of man and sin. And he was also delivered because God had a plan from the get-go. All the way back in Genesis, I will crush the head of the snake through your lineage, Eve. So here he is, he's silent, and what is Pilate's response in verse 5? He's amazed. The word there, amazed, is positive. It's not a negative word. It's not like he's like, what an idiot. I'm amazed at his, his stupidity. No, he's amazed that it's, the, the word is, is positive in the sense that it's, it's, it means wonderful or like wonder or marvel or way we might say it is. Pilate's mind was blown. This great ruler of Judea is shocked by the demeanor and the stance and the lack of defense that Jesus is giving for himself. Pilate has never seen someone stand before him in this situation and has acted and responded with the calmness and the tranquility that Jesus has. Because Jesus is completely submitted to the will of the Father. He knows exactly what he, what he needs to do. And so his silence shows his surrender, but it also is a witness to Pilate, right? Pilate's going, there's something unique about this man. And it messes with Pilate. Pilate literally says in John 18, 38, I don't find any guilt in this man. Pilate's conscience is seared. In fact, Pilate has a wife. Remember his wife? His wife was the granddaughter of Emperor Augustus. So first of all, how did Pilate get his job? Well, he married into it. It's a smart idea. So he married into it. And Claudia Procula, that's her name, says in Matthew 27, she comes to her husband and says, don't do anything with this guy. She literally says, he's righteous. Don't do anything with this righteous man. Don't have anything to do with him. I'm warning you, husband. How many times have wives tried to warn their husbands of something stupid they were about to do? <laughs> All the men are like, never. And the wives are like, every day. So the wife sends word to him and says, I've suffered much because of him today in a dream. Well, this is an interesting, very interesting. She says, literally, she says, I've suffered much because of him in a dream. The, the text is reading that somehow, some way, Procula, Claudia, is it, sleeping and she's weighed down by this dream of Jesus. And she's led to go to her husband and say, don't have anything to do with him. Now, what's really quite amazing, we don't totally know for sure, but it is thought that Claudia Procula kind of really had a thing for Judaism and that later, later on, she was converted to Christianity after the resurrection. 
it's believed that it's possible we have these details inside of Pilate's uh, palace here because of Claudia's testimony to the disciples. I don't know. It's kind of neat historical thing to study. But nonetheless, what we see is Jesus stands in silence and Pilate tries to handle the situation by himself. He declares Jesus to be basically, he's not done anything wrong. And then what he says is, okay, fine. I got to appease the people. But he washes his hands as if he could handle his own guilt and shame. He knows he feels dirty. There's something not right about this situation for Pilate. His conscience is seared. And just like last week when we realized that ultimately, that ultimately it wasn't Jesus who was under, under all the trials, it was actually Peter, and Peter failed, we have the same situation here. It's not Jesus who's really on trial, it's Pilate. And when Pilate asked the question, what will, what will you have me do with the king of the Jews? What should I do with the king of the Jews? That's the question everybody needs to ask, isn't it? What am I going to do with this king of the Jews? What should I do with him? Well, if you want me to turn him over to die and to be murdered, well, I clean my hands. I think I'm okay. I'm, I'm going to be fine. It's your fault. It's on you. No different than me saying it was Nancy's fault for burning the office. Right? So we need a substitute. We, need, we cannot... My first point, really, you can't wash yourself. You can't get rid of your own guilt. You cannot fix your conscience. The things that are inside your head that are bothering you, bringing you depression and anxiety, you can't fix it. There's no amount of cleaning, no amount of good works you can do to solve it. You need a substitute. Herein lies Barabbas. He's the substitute. I mean, there is no clearer place, I think, in the Gospels to say that what Mark is trying to teach us is the reality of what we call substitutionary atonement. It's just a big way to say that someone needs to stand in our place, and atonement literally means removing the obstacles that stand between us and God. Removing the walls, removing the, the, the stones, removing the issues. It's, it's Jesus' way of saying, I'm going to deal with all of the roadblocks that are between you and God. And our only hope is Jesus standing in our place of punishment. And that's what Barabbas shows us. Really great way to illustrate this before we start talking about Barabbas so you can kind of see what Jesus does that no one else can do. On occasion, to just decompress and laugh, I watch a show called Everybody Loves Raymond. You ever heard of it? Ray Romano, right? Uh, There's a scene in one of the episodes where Ray Romano's very tall, very large brother brings to Ray, because he's like a sports writer guy, right? And he brings to Ray a personalized letter from Muhammad Ali, who's one of his childhood heroes. Ray is ecstatic to receive this letter. And so earlier, if, if you've seen the episode, earlier he and his wife, Deborah, got into it because things that he set down on the table, specifically the kitchen table, would just disappear. Guys, can you relate? I can't. My wife puts everything right where I put it. We're good. Right, Ally? No issues there. So they have this argument, and and he remembers the argument, and he's about to leave with his brother, and he takes the letter, and he's so excited, he puts it on the kitchen table. 
And he goes to step out the door. Smart man. He realizes, oh, if I leave it there, Deborah's going to throw it away. So he grabs the letter. He takes it over to the junk drawer box, opens it up, puts it on the top, closes it. He believes it to be safe. He leaves. And then next scene, here comes Deborah. She's talking on the phone. She's trying to clean up while she's talking on the phone in the kitchen. And then she's looking for a coupon because someone wants a coupon. And she opens up the junk drawer, and she realizes how much stuff is in it. And she's just searching through, doesn't find the coupon. She grabs the big stack of stuff, including Muhammad Ali's letter. And she goes over to the trash can, and she shoves it in the trash. If that's not enough, while she's talking, she goes over and she grabs a coffee filter out of the coffee, and she takes it and she shoves that in the trash. And then she steps all on top of the trash. And while she's shoving it down and tying it, she hears the garbage truck. She grabs said bag with prized Muhammad Ali letter and throws it into the truck. And then obviously next scene, here comes Ray. You can't wait till you see what I see and what I've got. And he finds the letter. He's trying to find it, right? And he's looking for it. And then he starts panicking and it ramps up. And then all of a sudden, his wife realizes what she's done and she doesn't confess. She's just kind of like, oh, well, I'm sure it was in there somewhere. And you can see her turn white and she's starting to feel nervous. He's all flustered. He leaves. Well, Deborah goes next door to talk to Marie, the mother-in-law. She walks in, she tells the mother-in-law, you won't believe what I've done. She says, how in the world did you do that? And she said, well, I was attempting to clean the house. And the mother-in-law says, why would you try to do that? And then Ray comes in. Have you seen the letter, Ma? Have you seen it? And he's panicked. And Deborah's about to confess. And then all of a sudden, Marie steps in her place and Marie says, I did it. It was me. He, you know, it's his mom. What is he going to do to his mom? So he's all frustrated. He leaves. Marie and Deborah have a conversation. And Marie tells, you know, Deborah's like, I can't believe you did that. And Marie says, well, just remember, you owe me. Cut to the next scene. Marie comes bolting into the house to talk to Deborah. Says, Deborah, remember I told you that you owed me a favor? Yeah, I remember that. Okay, now's the time. You, you, you have to take the blame for what's about to happen. You can hear the old father-in-law screaming from across the street, Marie! He comes running through the door, and for whatever reason, he's wearing a pink bathrobe. And he goes, where are my clothes? And Marie says, Deborah burned them. Deborah threw them away. So Deborah takes the blame, right? And and then Marie leaves, and the husband, the father-in-law stays after, and Next thing you know, Deborah can't handle the guilt, so she shares with him, says, hey, it was me that did it, but you can't tell Marie. He's like, I got to go tell Marie. He's like, you can't tell Marie. And he goes, okay, fine, I won't, but you owe me. <laughs> Cut to the next scene. Dad, uh, the dad cuts down one of uh, Marie's lovely uh, rose bushes, brings it into the house, and says, guess what, Deborah? This is your fault. Takes his dirty gloves, wipes the dirt on her face, hands her the glove, hands her the shovel. In comes Marie, yells at Deborah. Deborah snaps. She says, I can't handle this anymore. I was the one who handled the letter. I was the one who burned the letter, yada, yada. What's the point of the illustration? The point of the illustration is if you give anybody other than Jesus your sin and your shame and your guilt and your mistakes, it only perpetuates and only keeps going and only keeps going. There's no end to your shame and guilt by trying to pass it on in any other way. It has to be laid upon Jesus. And so our necessary substitute steps up onto the stage, Jesus, along with Barabbas. 
And as was the custom at Passover, this condemned man who is condemned to die, this guilty man that we're told is a murderer, he's an insurrectionist. Remember my whole point on the politics? You had the Essenes who basically were like, don't vote, don't give taxes, don't engage with the government. They get their own kind of rebuke in the Bible. And then you have the zealots. That's basically what Barabbas is. Take the government by force and violence. That's who this man is. And so Barabbas, who's this evil man, is standing on stage in contrast to Jesus. And the contrast doesn't end there. Because we know him to be Barabbas. But Barabbas' full name is Jesus Barabbas. You have on stage literally two Jesuses. It was a popular name in that time. You have Jesus, the son of God, and do you have any idea of what Barabbas means? The son of a father or the son of a man. What you have on stage before the people is you have Jesus, the son of God, and you have Jesus, the son of man. Who's going to handle your sin? Which one are you going to look for? And what do the people do? They cry out, give us Barabbas. And let Jesus go to be crucified. And they yell over and over, crucify him, crucify him. Give us Barabbas and crucify him. Why? Because you can squash the kind of movement Barabbas brings. There's always odd and weird zealots. Yeah? You can crush them. You can't crush Jesus. Not unless he voluntarily places himself upon the cross, but you can't crush his movement. The other reality here, though, is this. Barabbas, what is he going to ask of the people? Nothing. He just wants to join in with the crowd. He wants to get them to rally behind his cause, but he's not going to ask them for anything. What's Jesus going to ask? He's going to ask for their faith. He's going to ask for them to repent of their sin. He's going to ask them to confess that they have need. And my friends, if we understand anything about the gospel at this point, it's that humanity wants to dim that light that is the gospel. It wants to snuff it out. And so Jesus is ready to stand in place of Barabbas. He's going to allow Barabbas to go free, and he's going to take on the punishment of the cross. He's going to be our substitution. How does he do that? Number one, he becomes the curse. Right? You remember Genesis 3? If you just want, like, you, you know this well enough, most of you, I think, right? Genesis 3 tells us of the curse, right? Sin enters into humanity, and, and two Two major things I'll highlight here this morning. There are more, but two major things that we understand of the curse of sin. The first one we understand is that we're going to all die. Death is part of it. But then there's two others, specifically one for men, I think is more specific for men, and one for women, right? Ladies, part of the curse is you have pain in childbirth. Is that true? It's true. I've not felt it, but I have been there. <laughs> And it's hard, right? And then for men, it's that the curse of the ground work. So oftentimes when you look at Genesis 3, what happens is people look at Genesis 3 and they think, part of the curse is that I have to work. And I got to go do a nine to five. That's not the curse. Working is not a curse. The Bible says that if you don't provide for your family, you're worse than an unbeliever. We're to work hard, right, men? We're to provide for our families. We're to do anything that it takes to ensure that we care for our ladies, care for our kids, care for our people, care for our faith family, pray for the kids next door, right? We're here to defend, and we're here to protect, we're here to guard, and we're here to propagate the gospel. That's what men are supposed to be about. And we know that we don't always do that. 
The curse isn't work, though. The curse is that you'll work hard, and it'll never feel like it's enough. Anyone ever feel that way? Right? I, I first gathering, said, man, I, I come in on a Sunday. I could preach my best message I've ever preached, and then the heaviness that I've got to study and do it again is there for me Monday. Every Monday. Right? When spring and summer comes, I will cut my grass, and inevitably, it will grow back. And I will de-weed it, and inevitably, what happens? Weed comes forth. That's what Genesis says by thorn and thistle, that the curse is that you're going to have to keep working. And what's so amazing and what's so crazy, I've, I've been a Christian like since I was 12, and I've never put two and two together. But when Jesus is dragged off to be beaten inside of this palace, what do they shove on his head? A visual representation of the curse of man is shoved upon our Savior. That he carries the curse. That he becomes the curse. It doesn't say it any better than Galatians 3.13. Christ redeemed us from the curse. He purchased us out. He purchased us out of the curse. So that our work can have some kind of fulfillment. So our lives can be blessed the way that he has intended them to and that we can be in heaven. He says, Christ redeemed us from the curse. How? By becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Jesus becomes the curse, but he also becomes sin. And that's exactly what 2 Corinthians 5.21 says. He who knew no sin, he who had no sin, became sin on our behalf that we would become the righteousness of God. This is what we call double imputation. Christ has imputed our sin to us, or to him, to Christ. Our sin is imputed to Christ, and his righteousness, his holiness, and his beauty is imputed to you and I. How beautiful is that? And why did Jesus let Barabbas go? Number one, he loved Barabbas. And Jesus knew. Jesus knew that for the Father... In order for the father to love Barabbas, he had to treat Jesus like Barabbas so he could treat Barabbas like Jesus. And when you read stories like this, inevitably what all of us should do to some degree or another is ask ourselves, who am I in the text? And there's really only one of two people that you can be in the text. You are either Pilate and you're dealing with your own sin on your own, and you're fighting to be clean to the best of your ability. You're either, Bara you're, you're either Pilate or you're, you're Barabbas. You're the insurrectionist. You're the rebel. You're the one who says no to God and yes to the crowd and yes to violence and yes to murder and yes to everything that is worldly. You're only one of these two individuals. Will you handle your sin on your own or will you go about your business thinking that you are your own God and that you can lead your own agenda? And so Jesus, after this point, when the crowd demands that you give us Barabbas and you take Jesus and you crucify him, Pilate's against a wall. He has to keep the peace. He knows he's on the verge of a riot. If he lets Jesus go, the people are going to go crazy. And so he lets Barabbas go. Barabbas goes free. Another way to say it, you walk away free Someone who is deserving of death, deserving of crucifixion, deserving of God's punishment, deserved of, of God's wrath, you walk away free because Jesus walks away as someone who is completely innocent as a man condemned to die. 
That is substitution. And then the suffering that he must endure is beyond anything that we could ever take or imagine. As he's pulled off to that great battalion in verse 16, 600 men, he is then beaten. He is scourged. There was three types of scourging. The way that I label them is small, medium, and large. Kind of like McDonald's Happy Meals and stuff, you know? You had the smaller ones, you had the medium ones, and you had these larger ones. This is what Jesus is enduring. Typically, the Romans would play what they call hot hand. It means that they would take turns as they covered the victim's face. In this case, they covered Jesus' face, and they beat him, and they spit on him, and they mock him. And oftentimes what they would do is they put that cover over his face as, as they would beat him and, and, until the victim could could figure out who it was that was beating them as his face was covered. Most times, people died at this. They didn't make it all the way through. The, the, the pro, this process was actually to shorten the time someone spent on the cross. Oftentimes, like I said, men would die. Women, women this was so violent and so ugly, women were exempt from this kind of suffering, this kind of beating. What literally took place is, a, a, a tool of a wooden handle with leather straps uh, would be held in the hand, and at the end of each one of those leather straps, it's called the cat of nine tails. It was glass, bone, lead. And those shapes were designed specifically as they whipped the victim to literally grab into the flesh and pull it off. This is why Isaiah says that it's through his stripes that we're healed. Josephus, who is a historian, tells us that it was common for lots of blood to fall out and, and obviously for it to be a very bloody mess. But oftentimes that glass and that bone and that lead and that metal at the end of that cat of nine tails, oftentimes he said what would happen is bones would be made visible and entrails would fall forth. This is a beating like you couldn't even imagine, to dehumanize, to mock. Man, and the reality of what we're seeing here is this, this is to show us the severity of man's sin against God, that it is not okay to sin against a holy God. And that God, to be just, has to punish sinners who have violently abused the Messiah and his image. I mean, think of all of the sins that we commit. One of the worst sins we can ever commit is to mar the image of man in murder or mocking or anything else, lying, whatever it may be, for man is made in the image of God. I mean, just think to yourself, next time you're on the road and someone cuts you off and you cuss at them, you're not cussing at the guy, you're cussing at the image of God. Do you see how heavy that is? To treat something so special and beautiful with such disdain they take a purple cloak, probably a faded military garment, and they stick that upon him, and then after they're done beating him, they rip it off. Do you have any clue what that probably felt like? They hit him with a stick. They mock worship him. The whole thing is a bloody mess because this is our substitute, taking what we deserve. This is Jesus saying, do you think, a little shower is going to get your conscience clean. The only way that you're going to get clean is if I set you free by being the one who takes your place. 
You have to put your faith in the one who took what you rightly deserved. Everything that Jesus endured here, you deserve rightfully so. Jesus deserved none of it, but he took it all on because though we are more sinful than we could ever think, you're more loved than you could ever imagine. You ever heard that before? And so his substitution, what it ultimately does as Barabbas walks scot-free, and this leads us to our kind of concluding idea here, is this is the only kind of substitution that brings true freedom. I mean, I can't help but see it here. Pilate, he's a prisoner to the people. He wants to let Jesus go, but he can't do it because he's too filled with the fear of man. He's a prisoner to the fear of man. The religious leaders were told in the text, they're slaves to their jealousy. I can't believe Jesus has this following. I should have that following. I can't believe people are worshiping him. They should worship us after all. We're the, we're the ones with the law. We're, we're Abraham's chosen. They are slaves to their jealousy and probably even to the fact that they want money. They're, they're greedy. How about the people? They're slaves to popular opinion. Most of them are probably yelling just because Uncle Joe's yelling. So's grandma. We might as well all yell. So they all jump in. They're all slaves. And the only true free one that is really free is the one who's on stage. Jesus. The one who stands before the people. The one who became a slave so that you could become free. The one who became the curse so you could take on the blessing. The one who went to hell and tasted hell so you could taste heaven. Romans 6.20 says this. Listen to how uh, the author of Romans states this. For when you were slaves of sin, hear that past tense? You can now say no to your sin when you have Christ. When you put your faith in Christ, you don't have to go down that road of sin. In fact, Jesus gives you a path to say no to it usually. Always. So here, it says in Romans, you were slaves of sin. You were freed though. In regard to righteousness, you now have freedom, free to do that which is good, free to bless others because you've been so incredibly and radically blessed. Verse 21 is really interesting out of Romans 6. He says, but what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you're now ashamed? Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying that you're, now, you're now in righteousness, but you remember the things you used to do? You, you remember how shameful they were? Like, like, do you ever really want to go back to that? That's kind of what Romans is saying. Like, when was... The time that you were really promiscuous, really life-giving? When was the time that you were addicted to whatever was really life-giving? When was the time that you were numbing yourself with some kind of form or fashion? Was that life-giving? Most of you are here because those things were not life-giving, and you saw that Jesus was life-giving, and so you're here to get life because all those other things don't lead to life abundantly. They lead to depression abundantly. Amen? They do. There's a way in which God has called us to live, and he says to us, you were once ashamed of those things. Those, the end of those things, he says, at the end of the day, it's death. But now you have been set free from sin, both its power and its penalty, and you have become slaves to God. But here's the reality. We're all a slave to something. You're either a slave to the righteousness of God. Jesus stands as a free will slave to God, his Father. He freely has chosen this path. He has submitted himself to God. And he knows that only true freedom, true, true love, and true power will come from his complete submission, not to the power of the people, not to the people's public opinion, not to the cultural's opinion, but to God the Father's opinion. 
you are only free when all you care about is God's opinion. That's essentially what Jesus is giving us here. There's no hope from the power and penalty of sin without Jesus being our substitute. There's no freedom without Jesus being our substitute. So he says you've been set free in Romans from sin and you've become slaves to God. The fruit that you get leads to sanctification and its end to eternal life. Romans is giving contrast just like Mark has. One life leads to unrighteousness and a lack of fruit and one life leads to eternal life. One leads to eternal damnation for the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God because he took your punishment is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Amen to that. One great author says, from the time when he, speaking of Jesus, took on the form of a servant, he began to pay the price of liberation in order to redeem us. So we conclude with our Savior bound and ready to take your place. Will you try to wash your hands this morning? Or will you allow Jesus to step into the place that he wants to step into? In faith, will you allow him to take your guilt and your shame, your depression, your anxiety, your frustrations in life, your unmet hopes and desires? Will you give him all of these emotions, the chaos of family, the, the craziness of living in the world, the fun, funness of living in Truckee with 800 million people descending upon our mountain. And if you were here visiting, thank you that you didn't go to the ski hill today and that you're here to worship Jesus. Can we just celebrate that? That's kind of a big deal to me in in a place where for most people, the old big mountain is their God and their Savior. Another way to attempt at cleaning oneself from their own guilt and condemnation. It just can't be done. The only one who can fully take it is Christ. And I invite you this morning, fully throw it all right there where it belongs. Cast your cares. And that word, when Peter uses that word cast, literally means violently throw. Violently throw. Take all your stuff. Just throw it on him because he wants to heal you with the wounds that you have given him. Wow. That blows me away. Jesus wants to heal you from the very wounds you have made him suffer with. I worship. Would you stand with me? Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you have accomplished a work that we just simply cannot accomplish on our own. All of us must come to this place where we recognize that we cannot do this by ourselves. There is no hope if we stand before you as our judge and for us to attempt in any way to admit that we somehow have made it to heaven on our own. We owe it all to you. We owe the fact that you intervened on our behalf, Lord, that you reached down from heaven to snatch us out of the pit and away from our own destructive selves, Lord. You and you alone have done this powerful act. And so I pray that in faith we throw all of our sin exactly where it belongs 
on the cross and that we walk in righteousness and we walk in freedom and that we sing loud and proud because you are the one who has died on our behalf that we would live and be free. Thank you, Jesus. And the church said, amen.